Welcome to the Conservation Today show. We interview people about our environment and history in Douglas County. I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today, I have the honor of talking with Shannon Applegate, historian and author. Uh, Shannon was named uh, a recipient of the Governor Arts Award in 2007. She is a direct descendant of Charles Applegate, who blazed the Oregon Trail in 1843. She lives on land that was part that is part of the Charles Applegate original donation land claim in Yonkala, and her home is the oldest house in the state of Oregon still occupied by the original family. Welcome, Shannon. Hello, Francis. So um, it's so wonderful to be sitting here in Yonkala today. It's a beautiful day today. Yes, <laughs> daffodils are up too early, but we won't get into that. <laughs> The books that you have authored, uh, one is Skookum, one is Living Among the Headstones mm -hmm. about the cemetery that you inherited. inherited and maintain, and then you have a third book that is not out yet, but it's at the publishers, right? Well, it's being um, shopped around, as they say, in New York. It's currently at Bloomsbury with an uh, editor who's looking at it. You know, these things, you do things on spec, particularly novels. It's different than uh, nonfiction. And, for example, that it, the expectation is these days that the novel be finished. Well, this novel took nearly 20 years so that's a long time to do something on spec. Now, the name is Minus Tides. Right. We could probably expect to see it next year and read about it. Well, I hope so. I it, this, it depends, you know. I understand that it involves a lot of history of Coos Bay. Yes, it does. And of uh, era of World War One, And also, the, it's sort of two narrative lines that are uh, predominant. And they sort of wash in and out. So one narrative line is 1917, uh, around the time of World War One, and all of the incursions into the coastal forest, especially the spruce. And it talks a lot about that, but also labor, the labor movement at the time, especially the IWW. Is set bef just before World War One. It's set before and during. Uh -huh. The war, you know, that was rather short duration as far as the United States' involvement. Although there were um, lots of things that were leading us to it and lots of policy changes and things of that sort uh, from about 1914 on. But really, Great Britain and, and, and Europe was very deeply involved by 1914. But here we really only have about roughly a year, maybe a little 18 months maybe, that we were actually involved in World War One. Well, how can Coos Bay, Oregon, be involved in World War One? Well, it had a really important, uh, a really important part to play because of its natural resources. Uh, as you know, Sitka Spruce is uh, renowned for its strength, its grain, uh, its value for building certain things. Uh, among the things that one builds with spruce, especially in that era, 
were airplane frames. Air- airplanes. Yeah. But the original uh, frames for planes happened uh, in in World War One when people first began to to use uh, aircraft as a serious part of of their war effort. And it happens that Sitka spruce grows in about a forty mile range from the coast uh, inland and that some of the most beautiful and, and massive spruce in the world uh, is present from a, roughly the Olympic in the, in the United States is present from the Olympic Peninsula to the north down to uh, somewhat south of Coos Bay. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were stands, not forests, because they don't really grow in forests, but uh, gr- more groves, uh, often with their feet wet, they need them. They need that moisture, the wonderful moisture from the from the sea, the ocean, and um, they occupy. Uh, they were beautiful, sometimes thirteen feet across. Thirteen feet across for one yeah. tree. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and and in fact, uh, there are photographs that one sees in, in these uh, coast, little coastal museums and historical societies. You see just one tree on the boxcar that's taking them away mm-hmm. out of the forest. But the the fascinating thing about about uh, World War One was that it is this particular era because the Allies needed the spruce trees that grew in this band that I'm talking about. They were very hard to access. Now, they needed them in order to build airplanes. Warplanes. That's right. Uh And so the United States decided that they would take it upon themselves to supply the spruce and actually um, set up a uh, division, the Spruce Production Division. Uh, They were uh, loggers in the Army. Other loggers had gone overseas already to log the forests in Germany and other places. But as the war front changed in Europe, this spruce of ours on the Pacific coast became even more valuable. And so soldier loggers were conscripted uh, and became um, spruce soldiers. And 13 railroads were built on the taxpayers' nickel all up and down the coast and uh, going leading with little Shea locomotives and narrow gauge tracks that um, then connected to larger tracks, to main tracks. And these 13 railroads had spruce cantonments where the soldiers were put up, where the soldier loggers were there. But the thing was, wasn't just about logging, which that's a whole story, how they, how they did that technologically for that time, but the the part about it that's so intriguing is that in order to build these railroads, not only was it an, an incredible expense during wartime, but um, these railroads had uh, very difficult terrain to cross because, because a spruce grows in habitat that is a very steep-sided, a lot of canyons and ravines and so on, so these soldiers were not only put to actually logging these big trees, these behemoths, but also to building the trestles 
uh, laying the, the road beds, um, and not to mention all the wood that was necessary to for railroad ties and so on and so forth. That's a whole separate issue. So these 13 railroads, in addition to mills, big mills, a big spruce cut-up mill that was uh, in, in Vancouver, just uh, across the way from Portland, but also mills in places like, uh, believe it or not, Coquille, Mm. and to, many other places to mill, spruce to mill trees. the spruce trees. We could go on about this, but I will say there one part I think is really germane here since we're talking about environmental uh, aspects of this. They really didn't know how they were going to bring this off, how they were going to get these trees out. Was that why the 13 railroads? Absolutely. They had to have a way to get in, into the woods to do it. But they they also didn't know how to cut the trees or to treat the trees to begin with. So 13 they, foot diameter? Yes. 13 foot So diameter. they were cutting them in cans, which, you know, short chunks of trees, and often were ruining the trees, were getting trees that did not have the kind of grain that was essential for an airplane frame. So there was extraordinary waste. So not only did the trees go down, but there was this tremendous waste. And the soldier loggers lived in encampments, one of which was in Coos Bay. It was camp number 13. Mm -hmm. It was actually uh, closer to Beaver Hill, if you know where Beaver Hill is. Mm -hmm. And at one point there were 600 spruce soldiers that were to be um, housed there and, and to work there. And and they were, of course, as I've said, not only just logging, they were building these trestles. I mean, these trestles were engineering feats. Sometimes I know I've, I've come across uh, parts of trestles. You maybe have, too, in, in your wandering. I worked in the Powers Ranger District. Exactly. And there were these huge, oh, half fallen down trestles in the forest. I thought, what are those there Exactly. For? That's why. This is an untold story. But there's another part of this story, which is a social story and a story about uh, persecution. Okay? So these loggers were conscripted, and many of them um, were older men and people who'd had some experience in the woods. And many of them were... Um, of German extraction, who were and they were being hounded, as many Germans were at that time. Um, Germans who um, had come to live in the United States, German Americans, who maybe were naturalized, but um, who were held very uh, suspect of helping the Kaiser and so forth and so on. And so, to prove that they were loyal to the United States, many of them would sign up, sort of to show. Oh, look, here I am, being a patriot. I'm too old to go to the front, but I will join the Spruce Division. Mm -hmm. And so this interesting uh, mix of men, uh, some of whom were just trying to prove their loyalty, and some of whom were wobblies, members of the IWW, which, uh, you know, a, a, a radical direct action a labor movement that has a very rich and wild and wonderful history in the Pacific Northwest. And so the Wobblies are part of the story I'm telling and mine is tied to, particularly one old Wobbly. 
Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so that's that's that part of the narrative. Um, how, how many, there were 13 railroads, but how many miles was that about, approximately? That's an excellent question, and I can't tell you the answer. Yeah. I want to say 600, but yeah. I don't know that that's okay. true. Well, we'll I actually have a map of those railroads and so on. Um, and so and there were no logging roads in those days. Be, well, we're all used to going out to yeah. the forest on the logging roads. Right. Interestingly, though, Francis, during World War One was the period when they began using trucks. It was the first time trucks were used to extract logs from the forest. And then we're, of course, using corduroy roads um, of the type that we would think of more as going with the old-time logging shows that ha- involved... Um, horse logging and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. But they, but they actually um, high high lead logging came about at this time mm-hmm. because there were technological innovations as they tried uh, to figure out how they were going to get these big boys out of the woods. And so, as I've already mentioned, they've made these mistakes um, in in, in uh, riving them. So as they, you know, to rive them to, to try to go down the trunk um, vertically. Mm-hmm. And, but what that did was it ruined the fiber, right? So, so I don't know whatever happened to, the, to all the waste of those wasted trees. I've ne- never been clear exactly, you know, what I'm sure they found some use for it, but it, w- that it was not suitable for airplanes, the number of airplanes that were actually constructed after the decimation of, of all of these beautiful virgin stands of, of spruce, and I use stand advisedly, but these um, these trees, of course, were, were gone forever, you know. And But the interesting thing, the part of this story that to me is intriguing is that after the war was over, these railway lines were built into these deep, inaccessible places. And the government sold the railroad lines, the Shea engines, all of the equipment, the sawmills that had been built, including one at Toledo, a big one at Toledo, and all of the equipment, which was millions of millions of dollars, even at that time, they sold these things for one cent on a dollar. And so, logging companies, um, corporations that are still in existence, some of them, um, got their start buying up at these rock bottom prices. The things the taxpayers had paid for during World War One that didn't get used because the war ended. Wow! And so, did so? I understand the war ended too soon before the planes could be built. Mm-hmm. For the most part, that's true. And so, uh, you had all this infrastructure that was exactly. put in there. All that infrastructure. Down. Yeah. And who owned the land that these roads? On the groves, was well, some t- in some cases um, there there was a a way that you could. I think I'm using the right word, commandeer. It's a, actually a legal term because it was a time of war, and mm-hmm. and so uh, property could be. And there's another word. It's not coming to me at the moment, but it's like a word like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's just sort of. I'm I'm I, I'm 
the book it talks about these things. Yes. It isn't solely about these things. It's a novel, so it's it has the, you know, the the sort of drive and energy that you would expect um, well, I look there forward. to be in a novel. And there is a, a Native American woman who I call um, a Kakush woman who plays a prominent part uh, in the book, too, uh, in this 1917 area, along with this old wobbly who is in the spruce division to sort of lay low, man, until the, <laughs> the war is over. And a lot of wobblies had to do that because it was illegal at that point to be a wobbly. Oh, wow. And so they were literally undercover, and they had been run out of every, everywhere. You know, the printing presses had kicked, been kicked over, their halls had been ransacked, they'd been informed on, um, in, in many ways uh, persecuted. I mean, the story of the IWW is, is quite a story, and a lot of it is here. In, in our northwest, so these seem to me to be stories um, that I that I wanted I wanted um, to tell, and uh, uh, particularly about the world's largest standing Sitka spruce, which actually was not in Coos Bay. It it stood until just uh, a couple of years ago, and there was a storm. It was yeah. up north. What was the largest Sitka spruce left? Yes, there could have been larger. Ones. Absolutely, there certainly could have been larger ones. And, including larger ones in the Goose Bay area. Mm-hmm. But I really loved it. it. They called it the tree that could fly. Because <laughs> it can. It's a great name. Well, Shannon, um, thank you very much. We're going to take a little break. And um, this is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we'll be right back with Shannon Applegate. We're back with Conservation Today. This is Frances Etherington, your host, and we're speaking with author and historian Shannon Applegate. Also sitting with us is Chris Ruse from the University of Oregon. Chris has been involved in the archaeology digs at the Applegate House. We will be talking with Chris more about that in next week's Conservation Today. Now, Shannon, you live... Uh, and the oldest house in the state of Oregon is still occupied by the original family. That is true. Well, I live next door to it. You live yes. next door to it. Yes. So this is the Applegate House in Yonkala. Yes. Tell us about the Applegate House. Who, who built that house? Well, it was built by uh, my great-great-grandfather, Charles Applegate, and his wife, Melinda. You know, I think it's really important to talk about the fact that as a legal matter on the donation land claims, women's names were there beside the men's. This is not true on, in other situations in the United States uh, in that time period, but it was true about donation land claims. So it was like this. You had 640 acres and 320 if you were a single man, if you were married, then you got that other 320 because it was, and it was your wife's, and her name was there too. So um, I like to say that Charles and Melinda is a matter of principle. And so they came across the Oregon Trail from what, Missouri? Yeah, they came across the Oregon Trail in 1843, and uh, they came from Missouri, which was really basically just a stopping off place for about seven or eight years. 
the Applegate brothers, the three Applegate brothers, and I should say all three Applegate brothers, three of the Applegate brothers did come to Oregon on that same train in 1843. Um, but they had all been born in Kentucky. So they were actually uh, Kentuckians. And uh, their father had been a uh, veteran of the Revolutionary War, interesting veteran because he was uh, 12, 13, and 14 when he was in the Army. Amazing. Um, and he was a drummer boy. Wow. And uh, we have the drum down at the house. Part of the drum is, is down there. So Daniel Applegate was their father, and he uh, had, had, as part of the pension settlement after the... Um, the revolution, been given money, or been given a uh, place in, in Kentucky. That's uh, sort of what they were doing at that time. And so that's how they ended up in Kentucky. Before that, he had been in New Jersey. So the uh, wagon train, however, departed like most wagon trains from St. Louis and and uh, Joseph in Missouri, St. Joseph, Missouri. Because that was on the edge of the wilderness in those mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. And so 43 is a very early year. Until that time, 1841, I believe I'm correct about this, and 42, there were perhaps maybe 50 overlanders who had made it to Oregon. Wow. So that 1843 migration was called the Great Migration for a good reason. It brought some um, 900 people and some 600 head of livestock, the first blooded livestock to come in. And uh, Jesse Applegate was the leader of the part of that migration that brought livestock with them. And so he, he was the head of the... Um Covered wagon? Yeah, train? captain of the train. Captain of the train. You would have said that. Captain was an honorific to, to, for a lot of these men. You know, if they did something, then they were captain so-and-so, right? Mm -hmm. So, so um, but he was, they they did these things sort of along. He, he organized the train, as a matter of fact, under the, the um, using some ideas that he had picked up from the Santa Fe traders, traders, and um, some military ideas about organi organization, which was really important for a train that large. It was the first one. How large was it? Um, about 900 people. And so uh, Jesse had an idea of, of what it would take um, to successfully get all of these folks across, the planes across, and so that he didn't really have a model except from the Santa Fe traders who were, after all, people on trading expositions in a whole different part of the country, different, you know, in New Mexico and the Southwest. Um, but he, so he, there was reveille. There, there were ways of organizing the train, and he was really important as a sort of steadying influence. And um, it ended up that way because people were upset because he brought all this livestock, and they figured that the livestock that the Applegates had brought would slow the train down. Um, but it turned out, because he was so well organized, that they kept up with the light column. He had the cow column and the other part of the train had split off and became the light column. 
and they basically made the same time, even though. Wow. Um, so he was he was a really fascinating figure, Jesse. Mm-hmm. He was Charlie, my great great grandfather's um, older, a younger brother. He was the youngest of the three Applegate brothers who came. The other brother was Lindsay Applegate, and he's an important figure because he became uh, very involved with. Um, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, the predecessor of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and worked with Native people in southern Oregon. It is for Lindsay Applegate that the Applegate Trail, uh, Applegate River is named. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the founders of Ashland and lived Mm -hmm. down there when it was Ashland, Ashland Mills, and then eventually went to the Klamath country. And he had several interesting historic sons and so forth. So so the three brothers and their families came. Now, whereabouts did they arrive in Oregon? Was it in Oregon City that they no, arrived? No, no. They were not boosters of Oregon City, I'll tell you that. That was an early argument among settlers and the people, that, the sort of realtors, those <laughs> with the speculators, you know, they had, let's make Oregon City the official end of the trail. And, they, and other people had different opinions about these merchants and so forth who were trying to do that. It's interesting when you think of rural Oregon, even today, has, has, it has names of, uh, that, of the Thomas Hart Benton era, things like Benton County and so forth. Um, and the rural areas uh, describe, have names of rural places, and the cities have back east names, Salem, and so on. They almost call Portland Boston. Um, and so it, it was a pattern so that the people from the southeastern states came to the rural areas to be graziers or ranchers or whatever they wanted to do. And then young single men frequently settled in, in the little towns, in the settlements of the towns. And so right away you have a kind of polarity in, 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 the, in the state. So Oregon City was part of this concept of the t- of the town of the young the young men there and but families big families settled out in places like Douglas County or Lynn Benton County today. So. And so did they actually just the big nine hundred people in the train? Did where did they end up in Oregon? And then how they, did the they, Applegates break off to find Young College? Okay, they they broke up when the, that big wagon train arrived in November of 1843 in very bad weather, and they dispersed all over the upper Willamette around Ricreal, what we call Ricreal today, mm-hmm. and um, up in that area. And Salt Creek is where the Applegate brothers originally settled up there, near Dallas, what's today called Dallas, Oregon. So, so that's where they were, and they were there for six years. Uh, yes, six years, because... Uh, in 1846, the train came in 1843. They settled in, in the Dallas area. And um, the story in the family is it just got too crowded up there. <laughs> but I think there was a lot more to it than that. This is Conservation Today. We're talking with Shannon Applegate, and we'll be right back after this break. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Shannon Applegate in Yonkala, Oregon. Shannon is a historian and author and telling us fascinating stories about the Applegate Trail. 
26 is the year of the Applegate Trail or the Southern Route or the South Road, whatever you want to call it. The Applegates never named it after themselves, but it was designated, called that. Um, and the Park Service picked that up and they call it that officially now. Uh, but there's still people arguing about what it should be called. <laughs> and the Applegate Trail goes from where to where? The Applegate Trail um, originally... When it was plotted out, it was plotted out from north to south. And the idea was that it was going to avoid the old Oregon Trail route, which was along the Columbia, mm. because 1846 was the year when the border dispute was going on with Great Britain, and they really thought we were going to go to war. And so they were looking for another way, not all of the settlers, we're looking for another way to enter Oregon, which could avoid the Columbia River and, and all of the Hudson's Bay Company posts that, that were along the Columbia River because we were fighting with Great Britain. So they decided that they would look for an alternate route in, into Oregon. So when the, when the explorations for the trail began, they started um, in, in today's Dallas, or Ricreole, La Creole, as it was called then. And um, they went south following the old Trapper and Indian trails in what is today's I-5 and 99, basically. The, the, that was the route that had been used. They went down through into the Cascades, uh, through Cow Creek, today's Cow Creek, um, Canyon Creek, down that way and down into the Klamath area eventually. But they took uh, the Greenspring, what is today's Greenspring Highway, was the thing that led into the Klamath Basin. Mm -hmm. uh, they got to the Klamath Basin, they went around and ended up finally at Fort Hall in Idaho. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you visualize that? They went through Nevada, Northeast Nevada, yeah. so forth. Okay, so they plotted the trail in the reverse direction. And the idea was they were going to meet the immigrants at Fort Hall and then lead them back this way, you know, that the Donner parties were were in the snowy mountains. And that's a whole other story. But, um, but the weather was horrible. They laid the trail out from north to south and so that had to think in terms of the inclines and the declines for wagons to be lifted, no road of any kind, right? And um, so a lot of the, the road had not been laid out tremendously well. There were only 15 trailblazers, in quotes, Jesse Applegate among them. People got sick. There was a lot of criticism about Jesse Applegate and others. It's still a controversial thing. But that's how they got. And, but on their way down to lay out this trail, they came through these valleys. And they were so taken by these valleys the grass was as high as the sides of their horses. Mm. And they came through in June. And at that time, before the big grasshopper epidemic, which is another story about the environment, it's not been told. Um, but at that time, the hills had wild clover and wonderful wild strawberries. And the story is that these men on their horses, on horseback, came through and saw this grass waving. 
and this beautiful, mild kind of a landscape. The creeks weren't too big so that people could drown in them because they'd lost children in the Columbia River when they came in 1843. The boats had gone down that they built, and so they didn't want to have rivers that were mighty or problematic or could flood up, flood them out, right? So they were happy to have a sort of Elk Creek, Elk River, and uh, fine springs and so on, and all this grass, these rolling hills. It reminded them of Kentucky, and they were Kentucky boys. And so they saw this place, and all of them thought, this would be a good place to come back to. Let's get that. Let's, let's get out of Dodge. Let's get out of Rick Real and Dallas and all these people are coming in and we, we might as well just go down there to the southern part. There was nothing here in terms of settlement. Except the but there were native people. Mm-hmm. And um, Esther's people. Yeah. The Kalpuya. Yeah. Comema people, yeah. The Kalpuya Comema. And what did you call them? Comema. Comema. Is the... Uh, the the Kalapuya is actually, you know, a great big nation, as we would call it today. And I think there are six distinct bands of Kalapuya. So this was a, one band, and this is the band that was the further south, and they were called the Komema. The Komema. Mm-hmm. So that's how they saw this place. So they moved here. Yes, but only gradually, because the Whitman uh, so-called massacre, as we whites like to refer to it, um, the, the story the Indian people tell us quite different about the, the Cayuse and the missionaries up, up there in the Walla Walla area of Washington. But that intervened, and the Cayuse War took place in 1847, and so they were delayed a couple of years to get down here. But they, so they'd actually seen it in 1846, and they waited a year and came back down in 1847. And Charlie put his stake here in 47. Okay. But then, because the things that were happening in the Upper Willamette were going on, it wasn't until 49 that they got down here. And so was that before or after the grasshopper epidemic? Before. The grasshopper um, epidemic actually happened in the uh, early 50s and it was uh, quite a quite a thing that happened they, they just came through and all the apple trees and everything that the settlers had planted and the probably what had happened was that we changed the ecosystem the settlers changed the ecosystem which had up until that time been burned regularly mm-hmm. and so this changed the the balance of things. This is Estromyth theory. Mm-hmm. And um, there always had been grasshoppers because gra- there are records of what they call grasshopper traps in the hills, which are shallow, shallow places where the grasshoppers ran when the burning the Indians would burn. They, the, the grasshoppers would get, fall into these uh, these pits and be roasted conveniently, which and they were a great delicacy among the California yeah. people, so they were fine to have these. these uh, Maybe there wasn't enough Native Americans trying to eat the grasshoppers. Maybe that's it. Maybe they don't have. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's right. They had a plethora of, ga- of grasshoppers. So by this time, though, the Applegates had planted an orchard. Yeah. Built the claim house. Oh, yes. The claim house as we uh, 
we're talking about it here, was um, 4950, probably 252, 53, 54 even, because it took several years to build um, this big frame house down here. Um, so, and then the other interesting thing about it is, and we have a wonderful historic preservationist, uh, Liz Carter, who is also on our board of director, directors, and um, she's done a lot of very wonderful research on the Willamette Valley and early settlement in southern Oregon. And um, she reminds us that buildings were repurposed then just as they are repurposed now. So that cabin could well have, um, well, we know it was kind of a guest house for the other people who came through and who stayed on the place, right? So, so in other words, a family might move in for a season there, right? After, it had, after its heyday as the claim the cabin for the Applegates, that's a possibility we don't. We're gonna take a break. This is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we'll be right back with Shannon Applegate. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Shannon Applegate, historian, author, and she's telling us about the Applegate House. The Applegate House itself is big. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, where did they go buy the lumber for that? And there weren't any stores around. Well, they, they milled. They milled, uh, they, the lumber was milled from either the mill of George Washington Cannon, who was a very early person, very early in the valley over in Scotts Valley area, or from a man named Mulvaney, who also had a very early sawmill. But certainly they were taking the trees off the place. Come, come back to this environmental thing. Remember that what the Applegates saw were open oak savannas with high waving grass. And the Douglas fir were high on the ridges, you know. And so gradually they have encroached down into the valley floor, mm -hmm. right? Due to lack of fire. Yes, exactly. So, so they were looking at a different landscape. And Charlie Applegate was a blacksmith. And so he looked at this white oak, the white oak that was all around the savannas, and he saw an opportunity to use that white oak to make charcoal for the forge. And we know that they made charcoal here on the place. So is the structure of the Applicator House made out of oak or fir? It's made out of fir. But, but they, um, and so, and, the, and that fir was sawn at either of these two early day mills but they were going, the fur wasn't as close as we perceive it today. Mm -hmm. Wow, a lot of hard work. Yeah. And then I understand that the house was divided into a female and male side. That's right. This is fascinating. I never heard about this before I, yeah. I was. Well, you know, there was a family tradition that, that said that um, Melinda Applegate, who was a midwife, and who, after all, had 16 children, um, 15 of whom lived, which uh, is pretty wow. good. Yeah. Um, a lot of ancestors. Uh, and she was an herbalist and uh, a remarkable person. And uh, 
you can see how she might have wanted to have a private space or a room. Uh, so therefore, the women's side makes a kind of sense. And actually, the cooking was done on the women's side. Their, their great-great-granddaddy was a blacksmith, put the rods in the fireplace and with the Dutch ovens on and so on. So originally, that part of the house was also where they ate. Um, also, it's on the west side, and the women needed that light. They, were, they worked very late in the day, and they needed that light that, that being on the west. And so the men's side was on the east. Um, they get up early in the morning. Yes, to do things and so forth. And then, um, and also over time, because it was really the first house of any consequence in many, many a mile. One of my um, relatives told me between here and Sacramento, well, I, don't, I think that's a stretch, but I think that it was probably a pretty impressive house for a, a, a considerable distance. And, and we know that Charlie, who was quite the host and who didn't mind throwing a few back um, with friends who might stop by and had a whiskey barrel on the porch of the men's side, that when the miners and so forth in later times and other settlers would come down the road, um, which would be 99 roughly, the old Oregon, California trailers that ran through here, um, that he would invite them in to stay. And so the men's side had people sleeping on the floors, um, not like a formal inn or anything, uh, but, you know, kind of a come one, come all kind of a thing over there. And um, and they'd come in and with their uh, blue bulls, which were the, the barrels that they had that they filled that were usually painted, that were like flasks, except they were little barrels that these guys <laughs> had on their horses and their mules. And they, 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 they'd enjoy their blue bulls. They had uh, whiskey. Yeah. Them, huh? and, and it'd get pretty doggone loud over there on the men's side, you know. At its height, how many people lived in the house? Well, interestingly, another piece to this is that Melinda was 42 when she moved in there, and she had her last child the day or that the year that they moved in. So that another theory is that this house with no doors connecting, all right, was a was a sort of architectural birth control, perhaps. So, so those are two good reasons to have a house divided like that. But it had nothing to do with religion or they were, a, I, I would say these, I would say that the men in the family were humanists and they, they had a light in the enlightenment tradition. They were readers, they were educated, the women were too for that matter. Um, and so they were not um, uh, Bible thumpers from uh, like some of their neighbors, the hard-shell Baptists and so forth. So that way, there was not a religious reason to have the house structured that way. And it was not a duplex. Some people have thought, well, such a big family, maybe they had they built it so there'd be two families there. But there's nothing to indicate that in any of the material. And then the doors that are, of course, cut in there today were cut by Buck Applegate, who would be like my great-granddaddy. But uh, and there were two pairs of staircases that went up on either side of the walls and so forth. How, how many people lived in there in Charles and Melinda's time? Well, that's a good question because it would be grown children, and some of them had married 
by then and left. So it was a sort of um, floating population, and, and I, I'm, I'm guessing. In other words, not all of the 16 children lived in that house. However, a lot of them lived in that cabin and, and, and maybe elsewhere, on, you know, on the place, too. The claim cabin? Yeah. Yeah. And that, so this really, it really is intriguing, and I hope we can find it. It's, it's, it is remarkable. There is a wing, and the wing is where the kitchen is and the dining room is today. We think that's about 1860, something in there. There's nothing that references when that was built. The rest of the house was built in 1852 to 56, the front part like that. I think that it, what's interesting about the house is that its human history, is, as well as its architectural history, is um, part of all of the personal letters that were written by family members. When I researched Skookum, there were thousands of letters at the University of Oregon. They're still there. And... Um, and I went through them and, you know, according to subject and I made my subject index card. I mean, it was really quite primitive. I was, there was no online, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and the interesting thing about those letters is that uh, so much personal history is connected with the architectural history. Like, for example... There is a, the big room upstairs was sometimes referred to as the girls' dormitory later. Mm -hmm. And one of the cousins, older cousins, John Miller, who wrote letters and was quite a wag, um, talked about peeping into the, to the girls' the dormitory room and so on. I mean, just these little sort of funny little, little details or how the fires were, went from um, May to October... Wow. Um, right. that, that it, they just had to have fire so that... Um, no, that's kind of Yeah, went from October to May. May. October to May, excuse me. Yeah, from October to May. And so, you, and so you think then about what the firewood issues were, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so these letters give this sort of hint of, of the life in the house. So, you know, you know, they're not going into great detail, but they're saying... Uh, how many people came for the New Year's celebration that they had and that they played charades and that they read aloud from um, The Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest, um, and had a sort of reader's theater, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm incorrect. It's not The Tempest. It's The Taming of the Shrew, which is even more interesting. <laughs> I had to just think about that. Um, and how one of them had on uh, a straw stuff that had been, or maybe lichen from the trees out here. The kids used to do this, that long mm -hmm. lichen mm -hmm. um, to be old, the, the, the new year, the old man new year, old man new year, right? With this, came to the door and announced himself. That would have been in 1862. Wow. You know, so here you have this whole life of these people. And they're individuals. And that's what I love about the archaeology, um, because we can, we know who was out there and what they were doing in their personalities. Um, that yeah. Jane had red hair, uh, that, et cetera, et cetera. She was one of the redheads, you know. Um, and, and so 
So, in a way, you, people might think, well, you know, you've already got so much history over there in the house itself and artifacts and so on. Why do you need to know the archaeology? Well, it's because there's this whole hole in their experience, which was, after all, their initial experience here. Right, right. As they were getting ready to um, build and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a... I th- and also, I notice that when people come to that house, Francis, inevitably they say, oh, this reminds me of my great-grandmother's house that I once saw that my mother took me to in Connecticut. It's not that it looks like that house. It was, that house was different. It had a stone this or stone that. But it has that feeling, that feeling. And so it, I think that the house is, is so much more than an artifact. It's a way in which people connect to something that they're missing. And I think the thing they're missing is a kind of continuity. And I think that that's, it's Applegate, Schmapplegate. You know, I mean, it's great that I, I feel really fortunate to, that, that that's uh, something I can point to and feel connected to. But I think it has a much larger significance than that to people because it's literally a little doorway into eras. Obviously, they're here, so so they have ancestors yeah. who survived that same time, you know. You know, um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, did they grow all their own food on these grounds right here around the house? And they yes. grew 100% of their own food? As far as we can tell. But, you know, things changed rather quickly. Um, and, and neighbors traded uh-huh. things. But I would say, yes, we know that they milked 30 no, 50 cows. I just found this out when I was doing research about the house. Um, 50 cows milk them. What did they do with all that milk? The family couldn't do it. Well, they gave it to Cynthia Applegate, who had a little enterprising cheese-making business. She was making cheese over at Jesse's place a mile away. And what did she do with that cheese? Well, Oh, she put a little sage in it to give it a little flavor uh-huh. sometimes. She was she was a, quite a woman. Uh, Cheesemaking is, yeah. is a big deal, right? Um, so so it's, it's like this barter economy with all the other settlers. Someone might make pottery and that's trade right. for that's right. the cheese. That's or right. The, that's right. Or this, yeah. the metal items that yeah. Charlie made. The metal items out. that Charlie made. That was a great trade item. How did they get wheat for bread? Um... That's a that's an excellent question. There was a lot. There were, of course, as time went on. Like for example, they took their their. Um, that's a great question. At this time went on. It's still in this early period in the sixties, eighteen sixties. They would go up the Willamette Valley regularly and take their wool, mm-hmm. because they took it up to, to um, Salem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was the closest woolen mill at that time. So I'm guessing that they they let the, they got their wheat primarily from farmers in Willamette, okay. who had entirely different um, ecosystem and and emphasis on what they did with the land. 
primarily they were graziers here. Mm -hmm. They must have, but but Jesse Applegate, I mean, Lindsay Applegate did have a grist mill. Mm -hmm. So, so they 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 certainly made their flour, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a good question. I wonder. I've, I've never, but see, this is another reason to go back through those thousands of letters. I, I would. We want to have a symposium here, and and we've been talking with the Lane County Historical Society about how we might be able to invite scholars and other people to start asking some of these questions and going back to some of the primary sources again and using them. Graduate students, other other people interested in the whole, and and look at some of these things like the changes in the environment. Yeah. Looking for things like food the, the, the mm -hmm. production uh, and those kinds of questions, you know. And the blacksmith is fascinating. Which brother was the blacksmith? Charlie. Charlie. This is tr and we know where the blacksmith's job was, roughly. Yeah. Uh -huh. So you know where the black, and that took a great deal of charcoal. Yes. For that blacksmith, so you've probably found that. We haven't found the charcoal, yeah. but we know that they made the charcoal from the white oak trees. But that's a good point. Yeah, it'd be neat to. Find that's a good where, point. Where it was made. That if we, but also if we found the blacksmith site, uh, we're still talking with uh, Chris Ruiz, who's here, who's a, our archaeologist that's working on the art. And we look forward to talking with Chris in greater detail about this fascinating work next week in part two of this interview. So we're going to wrap up for today. Thank you so much, Shannon, for your time today. I'm happy to do it. And this uh, interview will be podcast on the KQUA uh, website. That's 99.7 KQUA.